Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, welcome. Thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by a man who's definitely not afraid to rock the boat. From helping establish the Black Police Association, heavily influencing the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, discussing critical issues with a Home Secretary, a Prime Minister and an American President, Paul Wilson's impact as one of the UK's longest serving and most senior black police officers cannot be overestimated. Paul's memoir, Rocking the Boat, a superintendent's 30 year career fighting institutional racism, pulls no punches. It's been described as a challenging read at this particular time for those concerned with the police and race relations by none other than Trevor Hall, CBE, the retired race equality advisor to the Home Office. And it's been praised by many of his colleagues. Lord Brian Paddock, the former Deputy Assistant Commissioner at the Metropolitan Police, described the book as an important wake up call in the Black Lives Matter era. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you grew up in rural Lincolnshire. That's correct. Your family wasn't in the force. How did you end up deciding you wanted to become a police officer and then such a senior figure within the police? Um, Well, the condensed version is um, growing up in Lincolnshire, I was the only person of colour in that kind of very rural, white, working class environment, which was fine, which was didn't present me any problem whatsoever. But in my teens, um, I began to travel to other places in, in the north and the Midlands and I began to meet other black people. And I began to talk to them and began to understand their way of life and their their socialization and their concerns, etc. And I just felt that uh, growing up as the only the sole black person in in my kind of neighborhood wasn't probably a healthy thing to do. And that I needed to move to a larger city and take advantage of the the diversity that that presented. So I began looking for a job, essentially, and to cut a very long story short, I found a job in London. And the job just happened to be with the Metropolitan Police Force, not as a police officer, but as a clerical assistant. So I moved from my native Lincolnshire down to London without any friends or any contact in London whatsoever, and began working at New Scotland Yard uh, <laughs> as a clerical assistant. And, um, you know, one day I was working in Boston in a uh, optical mechanic workshop, cutting lenses for spectacles. And a few days later, I was literally in the uh, iconic tower block known as New Scotland Yard, the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police Force. And it was there 
that I began my career uh, and tried to climb the ladder as a clerk, became a law clerk, began working in the court system. And it was in the court system that I became very familiar with police officers because I would watch them giving evidence. And um, it was then I became very critical of police officers, actually, um, because of their failure to give sufficient evidence. So that sparked my interest in policing. And it was a, it was a series of accidents and coincidences, uh, if you wish. And, and it's interesting to hear you say that you uh, were concerned that obviously it wasn't healthy being the only black person in this area and that you needed to find somewhere with more mm -hmm. diversity. Can you maybe break that down? Why was it important for you to find somewhere? And why was it unhealthy to be in a space where you were the only black person? Because I think there's a there's definitely a cultural trend right now to say, well, what's you know, what's the problem there? Why would that even be an issue? Yeah, um, for me, um, I was um, always very interested in my um, African heritage. My father uh, was an African-American serviceman who had um, visited uh, the UK with the US uh, forces, uh, US Air Force, and had been stationed uh, near to my village, which is where he met my mother. And um, the relationship um, blossomed, but unfortunately came to an abrupt end. And, and he was sent back to the United States because we're talking about um, 1958 here when um, such liaisons were unlawful in some states. So there was no possibility of my mother and he moving to the United States with me. Mm. Um, it, it would not have been healthy for anyone. So... Mm. Um, but that aside, um, his station commander um, was very unsympathetic to, 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 to the outcome of the relationship and didn't take that into account. He was moved um, and we didn't meet again until I was in my early 30s. So I was very uh, conscious of the fact that I had an African-American father. I was very conscious of the fact that I needed or I wanted to know more about my african uh, African-American heritage. And it was through my music, really. I became very, very interested in black music, and um, as did many of my friends, as did many of my friends. And it was a white friend who actually introduced me to soul music at the tender age of uh, 11. Um, and um, I was became fascinated, and that became my kind of route into a black culture. It was my only route into a black culture in Lincolnshire. Um, mm. So I would read um, black music magazine, Black Echoes newspaper, Blues and Soul magazine, avidly every week. And and as I say, that was my experience, and that was how. I accessed a very distant African-American culture and I wanted to know more. I wanted to learn more. I, and I, I wanted to travel. And none of these kind of interests were shared by my white friends for some reason. And um, so I felt that, you know, I needed to move somewhere where people looked like me where I could have these discussions, perhaps, and where, um, you know, I could I could use it, use that as a platform to leave, possibly leave the UK, visit the visit the United States and really understand who 
by African-American um, heritage. So you leave Lincolnshire looking for, as you say, a healthier environment and yeah. you end up working for the police, albeit not immediately as a police officer. Uh, <laughs> I, You describe being one of the three black officers at Croydon in the 80s and endemic yeah. and unabashed racism from your colleagues. Yeah. Um, you describe repeatedly being called the N-word, the N-word being used, in fact, quite yeah. openly, it would seem, yeah. by colleagues, by superiors, and having to put up with that because you were yeah. under probation, in fact. Yeah. Um, how much, you, you, you're, you're then in the force for 30 years, so you can, you can really give us a sense of, you know, yeah. do you feel the culture has changed within the force within mm. the last 30 years do you mm. see meaningful shifts or do you see a more as some mm. critics would say pc culture where some things mm. are just less openly expressed mm. interesting question when i uh, when i joined um the metropolitan police uh published a report by the policy studies institute um, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a very interesting and a very important um, report. It was for me because at the time of publication, I was about to join the police as a uniformed constable. So I was very interested to see that report. And essentially, that report, it was commissioned by the Metropolitan Police um, three years prior to its publication. A team of academics were allowed to embed themselves in the police in many different units, watching and observing ethnographic, I think is the name for it, mm, study, yeah. um, a longitudinal ethnographic study of the police culture and its relationship with minority ethnic communities. <clears throat> and that uh, report published in 1983 revealed a damning, damning environment where police officers use the N-word and niggers, wogs and coons. Let's not beat about the bush. Niggers, wogs and coons was the daily language used by many police officers. Interestingly, the researchers were so taken aback and found the language used so kind of vicious and, and felt so nauseous that they excused themselves from the workplace on occasions because they couldn't put up with it. Mm. Unfortunately, I didn't have that luxury. Indeed. I, I had to find ways of putting up with it, of navigating my way through it, around it, and occasionally challenging it. But as a young probationary constable, challenging it, it was not not particularly healthy. Um, if I challenged it on every occasion, I, I would have had to leave because I would have been ostracized. I would have been, uh, uh, I would have been the person not to trust. I would have been the person who was left out of everything. And now I wanted to get on in the police. It's just a natural you know, desire. You join an organization, you want to get on. I particularly wanted to get on because I wanted to be, um, promoted so I could lift myself above this kind of daily diatribe of racial slurs and felt that as a senior officer I, I would do something about it. 
So I was very careful and very cautious about how I challenged and I picked my I picked my battles. Sometimes I did it in a joking manner and other times I was more serious. But I was often met with, oh, you're all right. You're one of us. We didn't mean you. He's not talking about you. Um, the fact is that they were talking about black people, but because I was present, they were not aiming it at me. So it was deemed to be acceptable. Mm. Um, that's what I would be met with whenever I challenged it. And it, we, I was, uh, it was a losing battle. So you learned to kind of ignore it. You learned to look the other way. You learned to sort of close your ears to it because it was it was so prevalent. And it wasn't just the junior officers. And I, I make, you know, I make note in my book that, uh, you know, sergeants and inspectors, yeah. it was a part of the culture. Right. And in label. It's been labelled the canteen culture, but it's to suggest that it only took place in the canteen is a nonsense. It, mm. it was a part of the police occupational culture, an mm. informal culture. And and can you diversify your way out of that culture? Some might argue that sounds complicated. Hugely complicated. Hugely complicated. Now. The Metropolitan Police, when they were faced with this shocking report, this damning report in 1983, clearly had to do something, clearly had to do something. So they called upon a uh, organisational expert, uh, Wolf Olin's uh, consultancy, and um, made a number of interventions to try and improve the culture uh, of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, for instance, the, the most memorable one perhaps is we got rid of Metropolitan F Police Force and we became a service to the community. So it was mm. a Metropolitan Police Service. And there were other interventions that were made. Um, I remember attending a kind of uh, a workshop where culture was kind of discussed in a roundabout way, but clearly I was the only black face there and the and the leader of the workshop used me to try and get the issue across. And I was, I kind of, I kind of raised it. I said, well, look, you know, race is an issue. And all of a sudden I was literally jumped upon by all my colleagues. What do you mean race is an issue? What are you trying to say? And that's how it was. They were absolutely blinkered. They felt they had every right to use the language uh, they were using. And that that language was acceptable and had always been used. So don't you come here mm. as a newcomer telling us how to behave. That was the attitude. And let me tell you something else. The um, chairman of the police federation. The police federation is the quasi union representing the rank and file of police officers. The chairman of the police federation, a gentleman by the name of Les Curtis, was in the early 80s interviewed on BBC and asked the question, should police officers be sacked for using the term nigger? Now, Les Curtis's face told the story. He looked absolutely aghast. 
he looked uh, it was an affront oh wow how dare you how dare and his response was what what why what why should he why should why should a police officer be sacked for calling a, a black man a nigger why 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 and that was how it was. I mean, he was absolutely taken aback that the the temerity of this reporter in asking that outrageous question, should a police officer be sacked for calling a black man a nigger? And and have you been to any sessions similar to that more recently? And are reactions very different now to that? Presumably the N-word isn't thrown around quite as easily. I say presumably, mm-hmm. but I don't have any idea really what, what it looks like from mm-hmm. the inside. Um, mm-hmm. uh, has that culture been successfully challenged in your opinion? Because it's been raised as an issue for a while now. Um, I think the answer to your question quite is no, not adequate. Um, I retired 10 years ago. I retired 10 years ago. Um, there was an, I would call it an ostrich mentality uh, when I retired. That is, uh, and I, I kind of uh, chronicled that in my me- uh, uh, memoir, and that um, senior management didn't have the skills didn't want the skills needed to actually make the necessary interventions. So um, it it has unfortunately been left unchecked. Now the feedback I get from serving officers is no, the N-word is not used on a regular basis, but they still feel, no, no, they're not, not used in their presence on a regular basis. But okay. obviously they don't know they don't know about conversations that take place. And there's certain certainly some kind of WhatsApp groups it is suggested still right. use that terminology and have been found out. So that and that's made the news of, of late. It has but indeed. generally yeah, generally speaking, police officers of colour are still not satisfied that the culture embraces them. Treats okay. them as uh, 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 treats them as one of a crowd, you know, one of a group. They still feel outside the group. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting. Let's talk about the group then. Is the podcast is obviously, you know, let's talk about whiteness. A lot of people would say that the police uphold the institution of whiteness in depending on how you understand the terminology so let me first of all ask you what whiteness means to you and what whiteness has looked like for you within the police I think whiteness for me is a label that is adopted by people of kind of north european appearance regardless of the country of birth and um, with that appearance, um, it, it, it comes a set of values and beliefs and experiences and generally history. And that history is one of supremacy. That history is one of uh, colonialization. That history is one of enslavement. And I think once you start digging into the history of the white ethnic group, you begin to understand why there are those feelings of supremacy and that are still prevalent, albeit unconsciously. 
Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's still prevalent mm. that, um, you know, the sayings that, you know, play the white man uh, were often, you know, made in my presence, you know, play the white man, meaning, you know, you can do better than that. You know, this is how we think, you know, you need to think the same. Oh, and, right. uh, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I mean, that is kind of very, so it's a set of beliefs, it's a shared history, it's a shared value system. So you take a, a white person from um, uh, the Netherlands, from Scotland, from Wales, from England, from Germany, they would share the same kind of set of values and beliefs and history of colonization and um the, the colonialization part is kind of important because it's very recent mm. it's very recent mm. and uh, and until recently we had an empire we had a british empire with all that, that brought to the table as well in and terms of the, superiority and within the police force itself that whiteness manifested itself by in in what way a, a supremacist white attitude that was then combined with the right to use violence i mean a lot of people would argue that that's exactly what the police are that they are defenders of the status quo which is a supremacist status quo is that how you see whiteness within the force whiteness for me was a culture that embraced a set of values that uh, you could look at and say, well, these are the shared white values. These are kind of supremacist values. These are the white values. And I talked about this at the Stephen Lawrence inquiry when I was defining institutional racism. Mm -hmm. And um, I was commended for that by the inquiry because basically, you know, I said that white officers do share a set of beliefs and those beliefs are the white beliefs, they're the white values. So outs anything outside of that is disregarded, is, mm -hmm. is not considered important. And of mm -hmm. course, when white officers come into contact with, with, with black members of the community, um, they look at that kind of interaction through their own kind of white lens and mm. they're likely to disregard the black experience as being insignificant. And I talk about the uh, in the book about how my beliefs were insignificant. What I said, how I challenged them was never important. Why would it be? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't white, so mm. why should they accept what I was saying? Why should they? They they have no knowledge uh, and do not want any knowledge of black history and the civil rights movement and the 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 um the experience of black immigration into the UK and how black people had to struggle and how the police. To, to effectively help oppress black people when they first come into the country because it's quite <clears throat> it's quite well documented that that was the experience of African Caribbeans when they arrived in England in the 50s. The police were not on their side um, certainly those kind of teddy boys that would beat up black people in the 1950s mm. um, 
were often, you know, I wouldn't say embraced by the police, but the police would look the other way. Mm. And there is documentary evidence that the police did go out nigger hunting. And there's an academic paper written by a an African Caribbean gentleman, uh, headed nigger hunting. I think his name was Hunt. No, no, his name was I cannot remember his name, but he, he he's written a, an academic paper, and it's been accepted. And he will say that metropolitan police officers, not by instruction, but took it upon themselves to go out hunting black people on the street, arresting them, abusing them, beating them up. And and that, that has fed into a culture. So it's, it, it's, it's important that we understand the beginnings of police culture and how elements of police culture have remained intact. Mm-hmm. And I suspect any organisation you would... If you were to look at the um, culture of any organisation, it is necessary to go back in history to find out how that culture came into being. And the Mm -hmm. Metropolitan Police is no different. And Mm -hmm. given it's the abrasive relationship with black people, you know, is it any wonder that we still have a culture today, albeit much improved from when I was a, a young constable in the 80s. Nevertheless, mm. when I left, when I retired in 2006, I could still identify uh, a, a difference in terms of attitude to me and to black people and to the issue of racism. There was an indifference. It was an, there was an indifference to to the experiences that my black colleagues spoke about quite openly and we we did write a report and that, and that was disregarded so i if if i'm hearing you right the the supremacist values that i think a lot of people would say have existed within you know white patriarchal european society what, what we call white whiteness in the context of the podcast was very much present in the culture of the police. And I think, you know, when you listen to some of the protests by uh, Black Lives Matter activists, for example, they call, for example, to defund the police. They say, we need to defund the police because actually the police are representative of and defenders of a supremacist status quo. They are the the guardians of that uh, supremacist system. How did you, firstly, is that how you would see the police? And if so, how did you negotiate being an officer within the force in the knowledge that it was some, somewhere where that culture was dominant? Very difficult, you know, and I had um, I had a continuing battle going on in my head. And that, um, I mean, I was very interested in black history um as a as a young person and certainly before i come to you became a uniformed officer i would go to evening classes actually to better understand black history and that's where i first came across the concept of institutional racism and that was about 1980 1981 and um and obviously i was to revisit that uh, that concept much later so 
Uh, yeah, it was um, a real dichotomy and um, not not something that I kind of easily managed, but I knew I had to manage it. I, I had to remain in the police. To have left the police would have been seen as giving up. I would have been losing. They would have won um, mm. because I, I had this. I had this uh, idea in my mind that one day I, I could be up there making a difference. And, and that's what really kept me going. And I, I used um, coping, a coping mechanism in order to stay within the police. And the coping mechanism I used was basically to throw myself into black society outside of the police. I embraced black society. I went to black social functions. I had black friends. Um, and that for me helped kind of even things up in that it gave, helped me retain sanity because mm. I, my, the conversations and experiences within the police were not normal. Mm. You know? forced I would have to listen I would yeah so but once outside I would have these kind of normal everyday conversations with with black friends yeah and so that's so that for me was a coping strategy that helped me remain inside so would you would you describe as your time as your time within the force as a as a sort of trauma that you were having to negotiate through almost black therapy outside of work that's what it that's what it sounds like and and I would not disagree with that um I wouldn't go as far as saying it was a trauma it became second nature mm. but um obviously if I was you know um you know introduced by to a psychotherapist and <laughs> this was analyzed in some detail they may yeah. find some traces of you know the, a trauma in in the deepest recesses um and not only that, I think what's not understood is that many black officers share this experience. Mm. But the white, the wider community and perhaps the wider black community has no understanding of what we're going through, has no understanding of the special efforts required to remain in the force. To remain doing the job that we want to do. So yeah. when I look at the lack of progression, for example, through to the senior ranks of the black officer, this is never ever a consideration that that black person may not have progressed to senior ranks because they're too busy trying to remain healthy inside the force. And once wow. they find once they find a niche in the force where they feel accepted, yeah. are they likely to extract themselves from that position and present themselves into another area of policing where they have to start again? Mm. And does not becoming a senior officer put that black individual under the spotlight, put them under a great spotlight and puts them under a great deal of stress I would suggest which again possibly possibly suggests why we do not see black people progressing through to the senior ranks of the police.
So you, you let's talk a little bit about that, because the, the issue of the retention of police uh, officers from black and Asian backgrounds has been a long standing issue. Uh, last year, a study by the Police Foundation think tank revealed that the number of black police officers has barely increased since 2007. That's a, a rise of only 86 officers across the 44 forces of England and Wales between 2007 and 2018. Uh, and this almost 21 years since a landmark report into race and policing triggered promises of radical change. Uh, currently, Black police officers have reached a total of around 1.2% uh, compared to a black population of around 3.3 to 3.5 between 2000 and 2018. Um, you also mentioned in a report that you'd authored that up until the mid-1960s, black people were just not welcome in the Met Police. And you say probably most other UK forces. In fact, and this extract I think is on the uh, Black Police Association website, I quote, this is from The Guardian in 1962, Scotland Yard says it would be unfair to a coloured man to act as a policeman in a predominantly white society where he might be resented. Uh, so it is all right for a coloured man to defend us from foreign body, but not from malice domestic. Some will say that the police are inherently defenders of an unequal, a racially unequal status quo. Would you still encourage young black and Asian individuals who are considering a career in the police force to enter an institution with this track record? I think I think we have to kind of remain optimistic on the one hand. Uh, we cannot say to black people not to join any institution in this country. I think it'd be very a dangerous path to take. But but there's a huge caveat here. Black people need to be made aware of what's in store. They need to be equipped with the skills and understanding to help them in the workplace. Um, I was never made aware it, uh, during all my time at Hendon Police College. I'd been in the police, remember, as a clerk for three years. I thought I was familiar with the police. I would meet police officers at court and they seem friendly blokes. Yeah. Very different scenario once I got inside a police station. A uh, very difficult scenario, and no one had prepared me for that. And I, in my book, I talk about taking that very first Christmas at my police station. I talk talk about taking a black girlfriend to a police social function. We had to leave after an hour or so because of the language that was being used, the racial slurs that were being used that brought tears to her eyes. We had to leave. Now. I'm not suggesting for one moment that it's like that now, but still I would maintain that black people joining the police should join the police for a career, should be able to enjoy the a career, should be able to enjoy all that policing offers. And it offers a great deal. And reading my book, I mean, I traveled. I mean, I, I'm unusual, unusual, perhaps, and I wouldn't want me to be seen as somehow representative of a black person because I wasn't. What I did was very, very unusual and perhaps unique. 
we shouldn't be looking at the unusual and unique. We should be looking at the experiences of the everyday police officer, the PC. And, and the many police. of them don't feel like they can stay by the sounds of things. Well they, well, they don't and they leave. They vote with their feet. And, and that's always been the case, unfortunately. 1990 was a watershed moment. I write about it in my book. The Metropolitan Police were concerned at the disproportionate resign premature resignation of black Asian officers. It introduced a two day seminar and forced compelled all black Asian officers to attend, 280 of us, to discuss why, just why we were leaving in unusually high numbers. That um, uh, two-day seminar at Bristol Polytechnic yes. uh, produced for the Metropolitan Police a Pandora's box, a Pandora's box for them to manage, because for the first time they heard firsthand mm. accounts of racism that bordered on the criminal. But am I right in thinking that what you raised in the Bristol seminars, you weren't then able to raise as formal complaints? You were only allowed to keep them within the academic setting? Well, that's true. It was an, there, was an, there was an unwritten agreement that this is a cathartic exercise, yeah? This is, where you talk, this, <laughs> this is where you talk about your experiences in the knowledge that we're going to do something about it, in the knowledge that we're... So that's how we felt, and that's what we believed. We're doing this for the greater good. How did that feel that you were raising, because obviously you, you detail some of this in the book, some really mm. horrifying experiences, but so you're airing them in front of your colleagues in the knowledge that you then can't do anything about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it did dawn on me halfway through one story that was clearly uh, clearly an act of criminality. Feel free to against, share. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, against this, uh, this, uh, this officer. And I felt that, well, this should be reported. This should be investigated. But there was kind of an unwritten code in those uh, in those syndicates that um, if we want to get to the bottom of this, if we want the organisation, if we want managers to intervene, then it has to be done, you know, on, on the basis that, you know, no action is going to be taken. Otherwise, everything gets closed down and, um, yeah, none. Of, this will not go anywhere. So we were kind of, that's what we kind of led to believe. And I still, I still believe to this day that it was probably the right thing to do. Okay. Because the moment you start, the moment you start introducing formal rules and um, professional standards, and the discipline code kicks in, and officers then become reluctant to speak about their experiences in any event because they, in the full knowledge that it's going to get back to mm. their workplace. They will be seen as the grass, which is absolutely unacceptable in the police culture. You do not grass on your colleagues. That's well, how a part does that of work if your colleagues are abusing you, either racist or, you know, misogynistic abuse? That is a part of the police culture. You do not tell tales on your colleagues. Some parts of policing, I would suggest in the CID, that is a kind of written in tablets of stone. And I allude to that in, I allude to that in my book. 
where mm. I was on the verge of punching the lights out of a, a of a CID officer. Uh, but you do not tell tales on your colleagues. Now, for the most part, for the most part, that remains the case today. If you want to survive, if you want to retain a popularity, if you want to get on, then it is not in your interest kind of to tell tales. But there are ways around that. There are ways mm. around that. And the officers have found ways around that. Um, well, but I, but I, at the time of the Bristol seminars, the yeah. time of the Bristol, we truly believe this was a watershed moment for the Metropolitan Police, that our accounts of racism would be acted upon, interventions made, and we would all live happily ever after. And uh, is that exactly what's happened? No, unfortunately, it didn't come to fruition. Um, it was watered down in so many ways, in so many ways. Um, and I look back now and, and because I, became, I was part of the project team, I, I, I gained um, a position on the project team to help take this board. First and foremost, the um, lead officer and assistant commissioner was placed under investigation very shortly after the Bristol seminars, which was unheard of, absolutely unheard of for a, an assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police to be investigated. Mm. And it's investigated for what many would suggest were fairly trivial matters. Mm. And the 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 rumour was that this particular assistant commissioner, in putting together the Bristol seminars, had stepped over the mark. Interesting. Unacceptable. unacceptable. And, and I note that there was, in your book, you say there was a white control group for the Bristol <laughs> seminars, which I think... Mm is is something that would probably be quite shocking for a lot of people to realize so you're all there uh mm. black and asian officers to talk about your experiences of racism and so mm. what there's a white control group there to give what their view on separately very separate very yeah. separate yeah very separate and, th and they, they were, were a group uh, of white people they were taking their view on racism on a, on a second um you know, on a very separate uh, two days, uh, yeah. a control group of white officers were taken and canvassed around these same issues and interestingly did not disclose anything regarding that closely resembled racist conduct or so being aware them, no of racism. So everything's okay. Um, we don't know what black officers are talking about. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Everything's okay. We can all get on, live together, and um, let's go home. That kind of attitude, actually. Blase so, attitude. So um, I, I want to come back to something that you mentioned about the the culture of, you know, uh, you know, no snitches, basically, that you keep, keep it all under, under the hatch. Because... Mm. There's a section in your book that really stood out for me in light of some of the recent findings around police misconduct here in the UK. Uh, and I'm just mm. going to quote that section. You say this is in the light of the uh, Bristol uh, seminars in, in 1990. You say what seemed to be of immediate concern to Chief Superintendent David Martin was not so much the white control group's absolute denial of any racial discrimination or issues likely to impact black colleagues negatively, 
No, it was the fact that after the first day's business had concluded, several officers retired to the bar just as we had done. But unlike the black and Asian officers, this group of white officers drank excessively and became very rowdy. It was in this inebriated state that some of them decided to visit the female accommodation block and attempted to enter the room of a female inspector colleague. For 30 minutes, they banged, I wanna say that again, for 30 minutes. And I just wanna say this as a woman who would be absolutely petrified at this scenario for 30 minutes they banged and kicked at the door and shouted at the woman the, the matter was the subject of an ongoing insensitive internal complaints and discipline inquiry this to me in light of what we know about the sarah everard case who was kidnapped raped and murdered by a police officer made for, for really chilling reading. I know that Britain's most senior police chief, Cressida Dick, said recently that this is, you know, the occasional badden at the Met, the, who's to blame for cases like these. But as some papers have pointed out, that was uh, uh, actually 771 bad apples in the Met who've been accused of rape, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and abusing their position of power for sex since 2010. I want to ask you, whether you see a connection between that culture, a misogynistic culture and, and and the culture of racism actually within the force. Yeah. Can I just say to kind of to allude to these individual cases as being bad apples is to absolutely misunderstand the nature of what's happening in policing and what that has happened for decades. It is a culture. It is a culture that underpins these occasional acts. It's a culture whereby, you know, officers turn the other way. They don't hear. They're never available to witness the wrongdoings of colleagues. So there's there's that culture that needs to be understood. And that culture has been prevalent for, for many years and has been brought to the surface on many occasions. And I would suggest, you know, when we looked at corruption in the late 70s and early 80s in the Metropolitan Police, that culture was found wanting. The lack of evidence available from officers of all ranks in order to prosecute colleagues who are clearly corrupt, clearly corrupt. Now that same culture has mitted against, you know, black people within the service, and I would suggest women to a large extent, women in the service. You know, you know when I joined, when I joined, it wasn't unusual for a new probationary female constable to be taken into the front office, her skirt lifted up, her underwear pulled down and her bottom stamped with a station stamp. That was a part of the culture. I never saw it happening. I know someone it happened to. Mm. I know someone it happened to because she became a member of the Equal Opportunities Unit that I worked in. Yeah. So she said, yeah. yeah, that happened to me. That happened yeah. to me. So, you know, these things were ingrained in the culture. They were jokes. You know, it was banter. It was good fun. It was part of being in the police service. But obviously the manifestations of those jokes and that good fun were often, you know, harmful 
to minorities, including women, including black people within within the police and indeed the wider community. Now, you played a, a pivotal role in the creation of the UK's first Black Police Association, uh, which I learned in the book was almost named NWA. I wonder how that would have gone down if if it had been called NWA. But um, t- tell us a little bit about, um, firstly, I guess, how that came about, and then the connection that you had through that to the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, which you have played an important part in. But um, first of all, let's let's talk about the the BPA and 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 how that came about, and and whether you feel, I guess, today that it that it undertakes the function you would have hoped that it would. Is it doing mm. what you set out for it to do? Yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, the the. the um, the Black Police Association was an outcome of the Bristol seminars. It had nothing to do with police senior management. It was something that happened as a result of a few of us coming together socially after the seminars. And you must understand the seminars threw many of us together for the very first time. Mm. Um, to, you know, there were perhaps 50, 60 black officers, Asian officers in one hall. And we could speak very freely. And it was, it was a great feeling. It was probably a feeling that our white colleagues experience every working day. But we could speak quite freely. We enjoyed ourselves. We joked, et cetera, et cetera. And after the seminars had taken place, uh, a colleague of mine by the name of George Roden, he said to me, um, I want to introduce a reunion for the officers that attended Bristol. And I said, that's a fantastic idea. So without any kind of sanction from senior officers, George, for the large part, went about putting together a reunion at a, a, a hotel in, in London, the Wardorf Hotel, and invited um, many, if not all, of the officers that had attended Bristol. And it was a great event. It was a successful event, albeit um, we were a little bit short of money at the end of the day. But that's another story. It was still yeah. a great event. It was still a great event. Now, these events became regular. These events became regular and very popular. And they became very popular with the wider black community in London because it's the, for the first time they could socialise with, with with black police officers. And, and this went on, I would for probably be 18 months. And then... I certainly felt that on the one hand, it's great socialising, but we need an advocacy platform. We need to be able to speak as one because clearly we are being picked off as individuals whenever we try and speak out. So a few of us started coming together with a a hardcore of probably 12, 15 of us would come together and sort of talk loosely about, you know, what we might what we might do. And um, any, anyway, there came a time when I when I into, when I invited a, a nucleus group of about 15 officers to a meeting in and that was 1994, 1994. And um, at that meeting, um, we we had elected a chair um, that was uh, a guy called Mike Fuller, who went on to become the uh, first black chief constable. Uh, Kent and in the UK I should add and uh, we discussed and I presented to the group the outcome of the Bristol seminars 
and what was supposed to happen and what indeed had happened. So at the end of uh, halfway through the meeting, people were very kind of disenchanted because I painted and portrayed a very bleak picture of, on the one hand, prom promises that had been made by the organisation and then the inability to fulfil those promises. Some ne nearly two years later, we, we still hadn't moved on. And so the question was, should we form a black and Asian support group? And the the the, the ov overwhelming and resounding vote was yes, we should. And that was really the beginning uh, of that group coming together on a on a regular basis until we reached a stage where we put a constitution together. First of all, we became the Black and Asian Police Association. Then we decided to become the Black Police Association. We presented ourselves to senior management and um, we were uh, allowed, allowed to launch as a group. The Black Police Association had been born. And clearly our, our aim was to improve the work environment for, for uh, all officers really, but particularly for, from offi for officers from a black uh, and Asian and, uh, background and to improve police service delivery to black and minority ethnic communities. So quite simply, that's what we were about. How, have you um, fared, how has it fared in your opinion, if you were gonna review it now, looking back since its inception back in 94, with those big dreams of what it could achieve? Yeah, I, I think the, um, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry propelled, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry propelled the Black Police Association to unbelievable heights, to media attention that none of us ever expected that we would attain. We had a seat at the table with the Home Secretary, Jack Straw. We became so popular. Senior officers wanted us in their meetings. All of a sudden, this kind of rebel group of officers were now the best thing since sliced bread because the Home Secretary said we must be. The Stephen Lawrence inquiry was just around the corner. The Metropolitan Police knew that it would be a very difficult time for them. They had to, they had to have their black and minority ethnic officers on side. So mm -hmm. they did everything within their power to get us on side. But clearly that was not gonna happen. Um, I was the chair of the Black Police Association at the time of the uh, Stephen Lawrence inquiry. Um, I, I had been instrumental in ensuring that institutional racism became a topic for consideration at the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. And on the day that I was invited to give my testimony with two others from the Black Police Association at the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, I made it very clear that I felt institutional racism was a key component uh, that underpinned the culture of the Metropolitan Police Service and went on at some length to describe that culture and how interestingly it also embraced black officers. And it's interesting now that um, a more recent report, the, uh, the is it the Tony Sewell report that came out last, earlier this year, actually, 2021, mm -hmm. 
um, mm. claiming the UK should now be seen as a model of racial equality is the new line that um, mm. the government says that, you know, the UK is now a model. So following, you know, the findings of the McPherson report, which were very um, damning uh, and clear in, 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 in acknowledging and recognising what you've described, the institutional racism within the force. Um, mm. Is it the case that there has been so much progress that uh, the UK is indeed now a model of racial equality? Or would you say that institutional racism continues to be a uh, a serious issue within the force? Uh, in answer to that, I would point to the experience of uh, black women giving uh, in childbirth who are four times more likely to die than their white counterparts. Why is that? Why have we launched? It's 2021. Why have we just come to realise that that is such an issue for black women? Have they just started dying in such great numbers? Or has that always been the case? I suggest it's always been the case. It's just that someone has now flagged up the disparate outcomes for black women giving childbirth, which suggests to me that there's still a long way to go in British society. We are uncovering all sorts of kind of unequal and less favourable outcomes for people of colour. It's far too early to say that we're a model. We're ahead. We're ahead of many countries, I would suggest, including the United States, I would suggest. But have we reached that kind of utopia yet where we're all equal? where we can we can look at the employment rates of, of of black people and white people as being the same we can look at educational attainment uh, of black and white people as being the same no we have not reached that utopia yet no we need to acknowledge that institutional racism is still living with us but we we need to do more than acknowledge we need to understand how and why? And I think we've discussed it. You know, we've discussed the underlying beliefs, the, the unconscious biases that often lead to these disparate outcomes. It's now for the kind of the experts to find the the the, the relevant and requisite interventions to ensure that those outcomes are, are, are far less disparate. So we've still got some way to go. Can the police force be a space where officers of black and Asian backgrounds are one day welcome and treated on par with as anyone else? I think that I think we've got to live in hope. We've got to, because it's such a powerful and important institution. We cannot give up on the police. We have to keep working with the police. The community has to keep working with the police. The police must work with the community. And I think in, one of the significant ways of addressing this issue is for the police to become more transparent and to work closer with the community. It's done so in the past with, with limited results, but it must do so again. But what hasn't helped in the last few years are the, the, the austerity measures that have cut the police to the bone. We talked about defunding the police earlier. I think this Tory government's done a very good job of defunding the police. You know, many of us don't know where our local police station is anymore because it was closed down. 
you don't see your neighborhood police officer anymore because they've been removed. They're now fire brigade type police officers. They come out when is necessary. Instead of seeing an officer walking along your street, you're only likely to see an officer when there's a kind of an urgency or a need. That is not the police service that we need or require. That is not the police service that engages with communities. We have to go back to some basics here in terms of, you know, neighborhood policing. We need those numbers. We need to replenish those numbers and go much further. Mm. Uh, well, Paul, thank you so much. We've got the quick fire round now. Uh, so just quick questions and quick answers, if I may. Uh, my first one, of course, is uh, your definition of whiteness in a nutshell. Um, North European set of the beliefs, shared values, shared history, and an overall sense of supremacy. What is the root of racism? Um, ignorance, lack of understanding, ignorance. <laughs> what is the opposite of whiteness? Um, an acceptance of all cultures being equal. Should we defund the police? In a word, no, because we've already seen the outcomes. I understand you, where your question's coming from. We haven't got time to go in that, but no, we've got to reconfigure the police. Can you be a police officer and overtly support Black Lives Matter? Overtly inside the organisation, no. Outside the organisation, yes. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? No, uh, there's no such thing as a post-racial world. Uh, we certainly have. I don't believe it's necessarily healthy to disregard race and culture and will not be the case for some time. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Um, in some circles, it's it's not. In other circles, it, it is. But we need to get to the bottom of it to understand how it underpins the disparate outcomes that we call institutional racism. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us. If people want to connect with you and your work, is there somewhere that you'd like to send them? Where can they head to? Um, well, my my email address is paul, P-A-U-L, uh, at rockingtheboat.biz. I think that's the easiest way to connect with me, paul at rockingtheboat.biz, B-I-Z. Is there a favoured um, publishing uh, house or is there somewhere you'd like people, if they want to buy your book, where would you advise them to head to buy it? Well, Amazon, <laughs> I say that with a deep sigh, but Amazon is the easiest and fastest route. Uh, go to Amazon website, look up Paul Wilson and Rocking the Boat. Thank you so much. Well, um, thank you to everyone who's listened in to this episode. Thank you to you, Paul, for joining us. 
and of course, thank you for everyone for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you.